You are listening to episode five of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is defined as a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who have walked this path before me. In this episode, I talk with artist Sarah Fox about her multiple miscarriages and the journey to adopting her rainbow baby, William. As a heads up, Sarah does share physical details of her miscarriage in this episode. I think it's so important to talk about considering that one in four pregnancies ends in a loss. So many women walk through that experience alone and in the dark about what to expect. I actually recorded this episode with Sarah the week before my own miscarriage in April 2019. I was so grateful to have heard Sarah's experience of miscarriage, which included taking a prescription medication to help her body, quote, abort the tissues of conception, as doctors say, and also her DNC procedure. I chose to take the prescription medication and felt relieved to know what to expect after having recorded this episode with Sarah just a few days before. Sarah speaks honestly and is such a joy to talk with. She is able to find beauty in her pain and darkness and is such a bright person. I know her story will have an impact. Here's the episode. So today I'm here with Sarah Fox, who is an artist based in San Antonio, Texas. Um, And she and I have gotten to know each other over the years by both being a part of the arts community. And we actually worked together a year ago on a project at um, ArtPace, which is a contemporary artist residency program here in San Antonio. And I um, worked with Sarah to put on an exhibition of her work and um, she makes beautiful collages and animations and drawings and sculpture of these kind of fantastical creatures that tell stories about life and love and loss. And um, it was interesting timing for us to be working together because your work, um, some of your work has to do with the miscarriages that you've experienced. And the weekend that your exhibition opened was the weekend before Ellis was stillborn. And you ended up showing up for me in such a special way. And um, when other people were kind of scared to talk with me, you just came head on and and took me to lunch and talked with me and cried with me. And that was so special. And I really appreciate that. Um, and now I appreciate your work in a whole new way, too. Um, so I'm so glad you're here today to talk with us and tell your story because you have your own rainbow baby, which is William, who you adopted after your miscarriages. Um, so I, I'd love to hear just your story of, of loss and also uh, that journey to adoption. Yeah. Um, and I think what you said about like listening to someone else's pain is really important. Um, or being okay with other people's pain. Because I think so many people, they don't like the sort of like awkward silences or tears or any of those sorts of things that come with sitting with someone else's pain. But, you know, we both do yoga too. That's another thing Mm -hmm. that we have in common. But I think yoga and mindfulness practices allow you to sort of be okay with that and just be there to listen to someone when they really need you. And I think it's an underappreciated skill, (laughs) you know, so 
just a little bit about that. But then, um, so my story, my long journey um, towards parenthood started, I get, I'm getting the dates wrong, but it took, we were trying to have a baby for about three years. Um, so we first started trying to have a kid when I was about 31 or 32. It was my last year of graduate school. I had my thesis exhibition coming up. Um, and me and Aaron got pregnant right off the bat. Like it was really easy. Um, it was fun still. <laughs> uh, and then when I, I went to the doctor's appointment and um, to get the first scan done and I hadn't had, no wait, I see I'm having to remember everything. This is what happened with the first one. I was pregnant, we did the pee stick, I was having symptoms, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I was teaching at UTSA at the time and then I was in the middle of teaching a class, I was teaching drawing and all of a sudden I felt blood. I felt stuff kind of coming mm -hmm. out of me. Um, and if you're a woman, you know exactly what that feels like. And I remember I started shaking in the middle of class. I ran to the bathroom and it was a pretty immediate like blood situation. Um, we hadn't been to the doctor yet. I went back to class. I said, I have to cancel class for the day. I sent the students home. Uh, I I went into my studio and called Aaron and I was sobbing and uh, my friend Brittany Ham was in the studio next door just listening like what's going on. I had already told everybody I was pregnant because I was really excited about it um, and I was, I hadn't experienced loss yet so I was in that ignorant bliss of everything's probably going to go okay. Um, and about how far along were you? I was early on. It was probably, when do you go in for the first ultrasound? Eight weeks? I think so. Yeah, I was at like seven weeks. I hadn't gone in for my first ultrasound. Um, and so I called my doctor. We went in, you know, as Aaron met me at the, it's funny because I remember at school, like running into people in the halls and people were still asking for my help. Like, Sarah, do you have a power drill? Do you have this? I need this. And I was still responding to them and giving them all the things they needed like paperwork or I remember specifically um, one of my friends being like, can I borrow your power drill? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let me tell you where it is all the time in the back of my head being like, I'm losing this baby mm. and still kind of going through it all. Um, and then Aaron met me at the doctor's office and they did the scan and they were, you know, um, they can't ever give you like a whole cold, hard facts. It feels like really right. early on, but they were like, everything's moving around. They just said it's moving. Like it shouldn't be moving. Like stuff's like starting to like, you know, basically, um, they call it the tissue of conception. And mm -hmm. I did a whole show based on that. Um, they said, you're passing the tissue of conception. And it felt so, uh, such a weird way to describe something that's so emotional, the mm. tissue of conception, but it's also like exactly what it is. Right. Um, so I was passing the tissue of conception. I was passing my first baby. I was losing my first baby. Um, and so I didn't have to take any medicine with that one. You know, I didn't have to, I just went home for the weekend. Uh, I stayed in bed a lot as this was happening Something that people don't talk about a lot, especially with my second miscarriage, which I'll talk about, is, like, how painful it is to miscarry. 
Um, and it's different than a period. Very different than a period. Yeah. It's like, I mean, your whole you're just cramping intensely for days. Um, it's all like blurry, but I just remember laying in bed and crying. And my dogs were such a comfort to me. Like my dog Myra, um, it's like she could tell I was experiencing some loss. She like would she curled up in this fetal position, like right next to my belly. And we laid in bed and watched Harry Potter and like <laughs> movies all weekend. Um, but so I got through it. Uh, I made a lot of work about it. One of the, I think the best. Um, so I make artwork. <clears throat> All the time. I'm trying to think of the best way to talk about this. But for me, it felt um, insincere to continue making work about whatever I was making after losing a child. Um, So I switched the whole direction of my thesis project. I had to keep making work. I was graduating. um, And I just made work about the miscarriage and the the final show was called surrogate and it was a lot about um my animals sort of getting me through pregnancy and so it had a lot it had this one piece called tissue of conception um that was i think it was 74 you can see how bad i am with numbers and math it was like 74 days it was the amount of days i was actually pregnant Mm. And they were done, they were in caustic pieces, which is a painting technique that's done in wax. Um, and for me, the wax felt very visceral. It like, f- it's it's liquid. You pour it liquid and then it dries to this sort of skin-like consistency. And the project was um, taking nursery rhymes and story tales and old illustrations and taking the mother figure in them or the child figure in them and and erasing them somehow Mm -hmm. so it was a whole project that was based on erasure um and so that was a series of little tiny drawings that hung at the back of the gallery and then the rest of the work was all these animal kind of characters specifically seahorse characters um seahorses felt very fetal to me and in different cultures, they show up as sort of um, forms of protection or babies. In Japan specifically, <laughs> um, when a woman is trying to get pregnant, you give them a seahorse amulet. Wow. And they're called the, they're not horses, they're dragons. So they're these baby dragons, these forgotten baby dragons, and it's supposed to protect you during your pregnancy. So that was the that whole show. And how did people respond to that show? Did they know that you your experience or um how did your friends respond to it too I think you know it's funny like I am such a like sit in my emotions kind of person and like express the kind of emotions like I think sometimes I don't even remember how other people (laughs) respond because I'm so like self-centered about (laughs) that part of stuff but you're not self-centered well I mean I just like I feel my feelings and if you don't if you don't like it, get out of my way. <laughs> but um, I think, so maybe one way to like, you know, clearly define it was I sold a lot of those little pieces from the tissue of conception and they were really affordable, but I sold like every single one. And wow. I think that was almost, I do talks about pricing your artwork and I think it's really nice to like price artwork sometimes really fairly so that people can show their love and support for you. And I feel like people taking pieces of my pain and taking pieces of my journey into their home was sort of a way that people could could um, support me mm-hmm. and help me. 
uh, yeah, and I, I think people really responded to it, work about loss, even if they weren't, even if it wasn't necessarily um, miscarriage, but loss of a loved one, you know, making a body of work about loss. Because like I've said before, it's like loss, it's unfortunate that um, both you and I and other women that have had to have miscarriages or lost a child, we're experiencing this level of loss really early on in our lives that eventually we all have to experience. Right. So so that was my first miscarriage. Um, and I, I feel like I bounced back pretty well. <laughs> like I was okay. My sister um, had had one miscarriage and then she was able to pretty easily go on and have her second kid and or her her first kid and then she had another kid and so I was like maybe the first one this is how it happens the first one you miscarry and then your mm -hmm. second kiddo is easy so after graduate school me and Aaron were trying to get pregnant and the second that we were able to get pregnant pretty easily the second time too um I'm the timeline's blurry but we were able to get pregnant with um my second child and that one was the one that was devastating to me because it went much longer into mm. the pregnancy. I didn't make it fully to the three-month mark that they say is like the safe zone. But um, we got to hear his heartbeat. I say his because that was just the kid I thought I was going to have. Mm -hmm. And we had already named him. We were going to name him Finn. Yeah. Uh, you know, and my husband's a redhead. And so I always kind of imagine this little like redheaded little boy named Finn. Um and we got through, we were able to get through two ultrasounds with heartbeats. Wow. And it was, so not only was it hard that, that I lost this uh, pregnancy, but it was also hard because it didn't happen naturally, mm -hmm. where my body just automatically sort of uh, miscarried. It was one where we went in for a checkup and there wasn't a heartbeat, you know, and it was just such a surprise. I wasn't expecting it it just took me totally off guard. And I remember the, the lady, like the tech kind of holding my arm and being like, I'm so sorry. There's not a heartbeat. Mm. And I was like, what, you know? And yeah. you, you're like, no, check again. Yeah. Like everything's fine. Um, and so there wasn't a heartbeat and I wasn't showing any signs of miscarrying. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my OBGYN, was talked to me about it and I could either immediately go in for a DNC, which is the surgical procedure, basically kind of like an abortion, but they go in and get rid of all the tissue of conception. Um, or I could take this pill or not take this pill, insert this pill that would make me miscarry. And so I didn't want to have surgery. And so I did the pill. Um, so I, inserted this pill into my vagina. It's just like a regular, like it looks like an aspirin mm -hmm. um, and started cramping. They don't send you with any pain medicine. <sighs> you know, you just experienced a loss, like a, a terrible loss. You're like numb, but also like full of pain and rage and at the same time. And I, it, it floors me that they don't send women with like any pain, but not even like extra strength ibuprofen yeah. or anything. And so they gave you that pill the they, same day. Yeah. And you went the home same with day, the pill. I went home, did the pill, laid in bed again. And that was so painful. Yeah. It was so painful. And I've talked to people that have had kind of later, a little bit later miscarriages. And one lady that I talked to, 
um, she's like, yeah, it feels like you're like pushing an egg out of your vagina. And that's what it felt like. It felt like this like loose egg kind of came out. So it was like thicker, chunkier, like clots of blood. And it was really painful. And it took days. It mm. took like three days for, and I was just bleeding profusely the whole time. Um, just laying in bed and just really, really sad. And my husband was so worried about me. And I think, you know, our partners can be there as much as they can for us and they feel the loss. But I think there's this sort of bodily distance that happens where they're not experiencing it in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think they're also with them. I can't speak for everyone, but there's this like layer of like intense worry about, you know, the person you love going through all this. And mm-hmm. so I just remember Aaron kind of hovering over me the whole weekend or I, don't, I always say weekend, but it was cause I wasn't at work. I mm-hmm. don't know if I called in sick or what, but um, yeah. So that's what happened with that one. And I was just really devastated cause I thought that that was gonna be okay. You know, I'd already started making plans. We had started cleaning out, the third bedroom, which is like the art storage bedroom and trying to make it into a nursery. Um, and it took me, a, you know, I think that one specifically, I don't, I've never got over it. And that's like, whenever you had your loss with Ellis, like that came back for me, like, mm-hmm. cause it felt very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the body of, so after I was able to like function again as a human being, Well, I'll keep talking about the medical stuff. See, I'm going all over the place. But so the (laughs) medical stuff. So the pill thing, after a month, they check you again. You have to go back and do the OBGYN. Um, I just want to talk about it because nobody told me about this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But you have to go back into the OBGYN and they do another scan to make sure everything's gone. Um, The problem, if, if, if there is any tissue of conception left, is that it could cause an infection. And so that's why they need to make sure that everything's gone. With me, there it wasn't all gone. There was still, like, tissue that was, like, jammed up in the mm-hmm. corner of my uterus or something. And so they were like, well, let's give it one more month, and then we can check again. That's so a long time to wait. It's a long time to wait, and it just extends your loss, you know. I mean, mentally, your loss stays with you. But physically, it right. was still going through you. Nothing was resolved. And so a month later went back, went by, and I had to go in again. Tissue still wasn't gone. So I ended up wow. having to have the the damn DNC anyways, um, which just brought it all back. So it's a surgical procedure. They put you under anesthesia for it. Um, and I just remember crying the whole time when I was going through anesthesia and Aaron kind of being there with me and then waking up and just feeling so sorry for myself, yeah. you know, in the hospital. Um, but they finally got everything done. And after that, they started running all sorts of weird tests on me. And my doctor was like, you're a real mystery. I I hate hate it when they say things like that. I hate it. I don't want to be an experiment. I don't want to be interesting. I don't want to be a mystery. Yeah, yeah. So the way I I ended up switching doctors after that because I did not want to be a mystery. And so... I had a whole year of blood work done and, you know, they, I fe- they found blood clotting disorders and huh. they didn't know if that's what, what it was and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we were trying to get pregnant again. Um, and the third time getting pregnant was really hard for us. It took like a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was hard and 
you know, part of it is that at that point, like having sex is not fun anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like a job and you're mm-hmm. peeing on the stick telling you when you're ovulating and then you're like, come on, it's go time. <laughs> and they're like feeling so much pressure. And like, so I don't think we were. It's not sexy. It's not sexy. And it like. It was super stressful for Aaron. God bless him. Like, it was just... So I don't think we were, like, as enthusiastically trying to have a kid as we were the first two times. Um, And that's a whole other thing that we've had to go through. And stuff gets better. But, like, trying to have a kid and not being able to have a kid does a real number on your sex life. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I finally got pregnant. And I would not let myself feel anything. Like, I was just like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I have a new OBGYN. And they were doing the blood test over and over again because I did have a blood clotting disorder. And then also, just because this was my third one, they were treating me with, like, kid gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to go see a specialist. I, was at, I wasn't at a regular OBGYN. I had to go to a high-risk OBGYN. Um, and... They called this one a chemical pregnancy because they mm. basically lost it like really, really early. And I wanted like on the third by the third time, it still was upsetting. But like for me, I reacted in anger at the doctor because they didn't give me the information I needed, and mm. so it was like an angry pregnancy. Or How pregnancy did they not give loss. you the information that you needed? So. This is what happened with that one was they do, and you have to remind me of what they're called. They're, they test your levels of a certain chemical in your blood. HCG. HCG. They test these levels of HCG. Pregnancy hormone. Pregnancy hormone. And it should be going up continuously. And so I was getting these tests done every two weeks or every every other day. Sorry, twice a week. Um, wow. Yeah. That makes it so much more stressful too. Oh, I know. I don't know if that – I think they were doing it because I had this blood disorder or – so the doctor, all of a sudden, all of my pregnancy s- symptoms started going away, and the doctor was receiving these um, HCG hormone levels, and I, was, I went to see him, you know, on a Thursday or something, and I said, I feel like stuff's going wrong. Can you check my levels? He's like, yeah, I'll check your levels. Well, I'll let you know. I'll call you back. I call him on a Monday, still nothing, and then, you know, the next day, I miscarry. And I remember just calling the nurse. I couldn't get him on the phone and being like, just like not raging at her, but raging at him and saying what an inconsiderate asshole he was because he had this information, but was too busy to give it to me Mm. or too disorganized or didn't Mm want to give me bad information. But if you don't want to give someone bad information, you shouldn't be at high risk OBGYN. So he finally called me like two weeks later and was like, oh, I got your test results back. Yeah, it looks like you're going to have a miscarriage. Ugh, I was like, gosh. I'm trying not to like curse on the podcast, yeah. but like, yeah, duh, it's already happened. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that one, I was just so angry. Um, but we had already started talking about adoption. So with your third miscarriage, or if you have something specific happen, they start talking genetic testing. Um, which me and Aaron hadn't done yet. We had done a lot of testing on me to make sure my body was able to have a kid. And they had found a lot of like, mis- or not a lot. They had found this blood disorder that was, they didn't know whether or not it could be causing it. Um, so me and Aaron kind of made the decision that we didn't want to go down the genetic testing, um, you know, route. In vitro wasn't really an option for us because, and if I'm explaining it correctly, because we could get pregnant. 
It was just that my huh. something was going on in the process that was making me lose the babies. Yeah. So it wasn't like that was even an option. So, um, and with a blood disorder, it can cause clotting. So it makes pregnancy a little more dangerous okay. for you as a person too. Um, so fairly soon after the third pregnancy, we started pursuing adoption and it felt like such a weight off of my shoulders. And I started getting really excited again and really hopeful about it. Um, and we adopted through an age, we looked up different types of adoption. Um, there's many different ways to adopt a kiddo. And we had a lot, we reached out to all of our friends that had adopted kids and talked with all of them. Um, and we decided to do a private adoption. You can also adopt through the state. Um, you can adopt, you know, a per- someone who has a kid that you know with a private lawyer, all sorts of different stuff. But we went through an adoption agency here called Adoption Angels. Um, and I, some of your questions were like to talk about adoption and how your uh, family sort of reacts to it. So that is something that everybody has opinions about adoption and they're going to tell you all of their opinions and all of their worries and mm-hmm. all of the horror stories they know. Um, so it was met with different responses by everyone. Aaron's family did much better with it than mine did for some reason. Uh, I think his Aaron's dad was just like, I'm going to love whatever, you know, like, Mm -hmm. how can I help? And Aaron's mom was just excited. My family was worried. Um, So one thing that uh, you deal with with adoption is adopting a kid that doesn't look like you. Um, So when you adopt privately, I can only speak to my own experience. You have to fill out this terrible checkbox that kind of goes through what you're comfortable adopting, who you're comfortable adopting, Mm. Um, you, you check boxes about race, you check boxes about drug and alcohol use and mom, you check boxes about whether or not there has to be a birth father in the figure. Do you need to earn this in the situation? Um, you need to check boxes about open adoption versus closed adoption. Uh, you need to check boxes about, are you willing to adopt a baby with a cleft palate? Are you willing to adopt a baby that has, um, down syndrome? Like all of these unknown so hard yeah it was awful and you feel like kind of you have to be really honest with yourself though um so me and Aaron talked through it and you know filled out these check boxes and one of the things we were very open to was race like for us it was really we wanted to have a healthy kid that was what we could take care of with our life like you know physical stuff we were able to deal with that um you know, we didn't mind if the baby didn't look like us. So we were, we checked every box on race that, um, we would adopt any kiddo and we were, we were okay with an open adoption. Um, and this scares people Mm -hmm. that you're okay to adopt a kid that doesn't look like you. Um, and my family was scared about that, which is ironic because both of my nieces are Asian and don't look anything like my sister, but you know, that's her family and you know but they were worried about me having a kid that didn't look like me and like well you're always gonna have to deal with questions like how are you gonna have to deal Mm. with all those questions and like my mom like if you adopt a little black girl how are you gonna do her hair I'm like 
I'm an artist. Yeah. Like I can Google how to fix <laughs> right. my kid's hair, you know, and it is hard because you're going to have to make sure that that kid doesn't feel isolated. Like right. there's all sorts of stuff that comes with adopting a kid that doesn't look like you. Um, so that was kind of how, but they got around to it. I was like, this is, and I, I talked to him about it really clearly. They were worried about drug use. They're worried. I had people come up to me and be like, are you making sure that birth mom is like eating all organic? Oh and gosh. I'm like, you have no idea. We got, we lucked out, me and Aaron lucked out so much with the birth mom that decided to pick us. Um, she's a wonderful lady. She already had a kid of her own. Um, and she wasn't eating organic, you know, but she wasn't drinking. She wasn't using drugs. She wasn't smoking. She was taking a prenatal vitamin every day. Um, Isn't it amazing how, as a pregnant woman, people give you so much kind of soft advice. Yeah. It's totally not helpful. And it, especially when you go through loss, then you question all those decisions you made. Like, yep. oh, should I have eaten more organic food or did I, should I have not have taken that flight or yep. did I do too much yoga? Yep. You know, and I had, yeah. I've had people kind of gently, unintentionally Im- imply that something that I did caused Ellis's death. And so it's, it's interesting that that also gets transferred over then to your ad- adoptive yeah. parent. <laughs> I think, and I, I've thought a lot about that because I had stuff like that happen too, where someone at my art show, that art show, mm. Someone, this man came up and started talking to me about what I was eating, you know, Gosh. about miscarriage. And I think that comes from a place of you just don't want to deal with the randomness of life. Yeah. You know, that there has to be a reason yep. why something happened because you don't want it to happen to you. Right. You know, because I feel like you see the same people, same sort of things happen when someone gets cancer, kind of surprise young like, what were they doing? Were they a smoker? Right. Were they this? Were they this? When a lot of times it's just random. But it's it's a fear defense thing that, like, there has to be a reason that this happened. And there's not. There's not a reason that it happened. Yep. Like, I remember telling you one time, birth mom rode a roller coaster, like, two weeks before William was born. Which I'm just like, <laughs> I remember hearing that she was riding a roller coaster at the rodeo being like, Okay, I'm not in control of this, but I don't think you're supposed to ride a roller coaster. And he was born like totally perfectly fine. So, you know, there's nothing that you did that caused this. I remember you sharing something to that effect with me after Ellis died. Like, not healthy. (laughs) You know, like there was nothing. He's totally fine. It's so comforting to know that. I mean, in a way it feels unfair. It's like, well, I did everything perfectly in my pregnancy and I still lost my baby. And, you know, other people can do whatever they want and then they can still have a perfectly healthy baby. And so, um, but then, yeah, there is comfort in that knowing, well, there's nothing I could have done differently to prevent this. It just, it is truly, unfortunately, random sometimes. It's random. And like, when you think about a human being and all the parts that go in it. It's a, I mean, it is a, it's a freaking miracle that any of us yeah. are born because there's so many things that have to go like just right for it to happen, you know? So the adoption that we went through, we got to meet, uh, and the, the language they use in adoption is like birth mother. Um, they don't have a, a, a name for William's brother, but we just call him William's brother. Um, so William has a brother that's like four years older than him. Um, his birth mom was just a woman that, um, 
knew she couldn't take care of another kiddo on her own. And she would say that her son was the best thing that ever happened to her um, and that he saved her life and she wanted to give that gift to another woman. Mm -hmm. So that's why she decided to give to place her kid up for adoption. Um, So she's my hero. (laughs) Like I can't. And I, I think about it a lot. Like, would I have been able to do that? Like, I don't know if I would have been able to do that. Um, but she did. And there were some things that were really important to her. Um, and we were very happy to to fulfill them. And one of the things was that the boys got knew each other growing up. And so we see them, like, every other month. They always meet for their birthdays. Um, we actually spent William's first birthday. We went out to dinner with both of them to get pizza. Um, and it was really fun. And when you talk to people about that, it makes them so nervous. Like, uh, they think like she's going to steal him back, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Cause I'm like, she made the, the super tough decision already. Like she made this decision. Like the hard part was the hospital and the two days afterwards. Mm -hmm. Cause after when you adopt, um, for two days, things are up in the air where Mm -hmm. the birth mom can change your mind. And the, the child is basically sort of in this limbo land. I bet that was stressful. It was stressful, but it was also, she had made up her mind. It was so, um, like, we were there for the whole birth. We stayed, she called us, I'm going to the hospital, me and Aaron drove um, up there, and we spent the whole two days with her in the hospital, and she got to go home before us because we couldn't take uh, William home for two days. So she went home the next day, and we all had pizza together. This is our theme. We had pizza together in the <laughs> hospital. Um, and we exchanged gifts and things like that. Um, and I remember her handing me back William after she had held him. And me just sobbing. And she mm. was okay. Like, she was happy with her decision and really confident with the decisions she had made. So, I mean, it was a waiting game for sure. And my whole family was there and Aaron's whole family was there. And that made it stressful. <laughs> but... Like, I think I knew there was no doubt um, that she was going to suddenly change her mind. Um, While she was, like, giving birth to William, she grabbed my hand and looked at me and said, I don't care what the nurses or doctors say. I want you to be the first one to hold him. You're his mom. And so I got to be the first one that held him. And, um, yeah, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Like, when you talk about... You talk a lot about loss kind of like making you see the good in the world. And like for me, that's her. Like I've never met someone that's so selfless and was able to go through. I mean, birth is intense. God, I was watching her do this and with the epidural and like pushing and hers wasn't quick. Going through all of this. Basically, for her kid, like, she wanted her son to have a good life. But also for me and Aaron, and, you know, she was a stranger before that. So, it just really, yeah, it just made me believe in the kindness of of other people. So, yeah, so we got to bring him home after two days, and he was ours, and... So me and Aaron stayed in this little room because we weren't technically patients. It's this weird thing. They have to kind of just find a place to put you with the baby for two days. Um, so we were in the back with this little tiny baby. Like, they're so little when they're born. 
And I remember waking up in the night and, like, looking at him. And he felt like this, like, sparkling little, like, magic creature that didn't feel real. Like, it was happy feelings, but it was also kind of like I felt like like it was a dream. Mm. Like, that maybe he was going to disappear all of a sudden. Um, but he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we got to take him home after two days. Um, and now he's our kid. After, so for another thing with adoption, um, William, we don't know who his birth dad is. So that was a big unknown. And that is why it's good to check the, we don't, like, that you're okay with any race box. Because if the birth dad is unknown, mm. um, if you have a really specific thing checked, they're not going to place you with that person. Mm. So the fact that we checked unknown, uh, or that, that we were okay with anything, um, they because they match you with people who match the profile you ch- you picked. And then they let her pick the birth parents that they want to. I'll explain it real quick. So we fill out this form of what we're comfortable with. And you make this book of your life. And so I made this book of me and Aaron's life. And it was like, my family, Aaron's family, what we do together. We travel. We have a gazillion pets. Like things like (laughs) this. And then when um, a woman comes into the agency and decides to place her kiddo up for adoption uh they give her like three to five books that match her profile um of you know her pregnancy and she gets to pick the family um for herself which i think is really good it Mm -hmm. gives them some choice Mm -hmm. and and you know open adoption stuff like that so she picked us and one of the reasons was all of our animals which i remember making that uh adoption book and people telling me don't tell people how many animals you have. We have five animals, which is crazy. But so I tell people like when you want to have a kid really bad and you can't, you like adopt a lot of animals yeah. sometimes. <laughs> and all of our animals have ended up living really long, healthy lives. So they just, you know, we have a bunch. But she she saw that and she was like, "We love animals." Like I'm that was one of the reasons they picked me. And we do stuff like we go to the zoo a lot together and we go to see animals and they meet the animals and stuff. So I was glad that we put that in there. Um, yeah, so, but, so we didn't, William, we don't know William's birth dad. So for six months, there's a Texas state law that gives the dad a chance to track the, track down their kiddo. So that was nerve wracking. Wow, yeah. So for six months, he's, he's, William was officially, um, I'm trying, it's not property, but he was in the custody of mm. the adoption agency. So I couldn't post any pictures of him online. So I got really good at putting stickers on William's little face and like posting his body and stuff. Um, And we had to do, like any sort of foster care situation, you have to check in every single month. They come and check out your house Mm -hmm. and make sure, you know, and for good reason. They want to make sure that this kid's going to be okay and that he's in a really healthy Mm -hmm. family. Um, But it's stressful, especially for two, like, hippies and an art person (laughs) to, like, keep a perfectly tidy house and, like, mow the yard all the time and just make sure everything's, like, really, like, set. Um, But after six months, we got to adopt him officially, and we went to the court and stood before the judge, and it was, like, such a super happy day. Yeah. So at six months, he was officially our kiddo. And now he's super healthy, big boy happy kiddo <laughs> turned a year old about what a month, a month ago, ago? Yep. yeah he turned a year old 
Yeah, we had a birthday for him, and my sister runs a bakery, so she had a really, like, beautiful cake for him, and we just had fun in the backyard. It was really great. It was good. Yeah. (laughs) You and I have talked about how, um, I want to make sure I get kind of the words right here, but that you're maybe grateful for the children that you lost before because they brought you William. Yeah. Is that how you would say it? Yeah, I am. You know, I... And I think um, with adoption, sometimes people are like, are they going to feel like your kid as much as it was like if you birthed them? And I can't, I don't know, but I've never loved someone so much in my entire life. And I don't think about the fact that he's adopted almost ever unless the one thing that makes me remember it is when people are like, he looks just like you. I'm like, well, that's bullshit. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but maybe he does look like me. But um, yeah, I mean, he feels like my kid and I can't. It would it it breaks my heart to think about him not being in my life. So mm-hmm. I think yeah I'm. You know, and I still miss Finn a lot. Like I miss that second pregnancy a lot, and I made a lot of work about it. And so for me, it had a visual manifestation of who he was. Um, and it's you know, and I think that'll be a good way to talk about it with William eventually, because I have these sort of. Um, objects and stories that I've built around these but so I'm never gonna forget him but it losing him let me have William in my life Mm -hmm. which I can't imagine my life without him yep yep I've wondered about that how how do you talk with your living children about their siblings who aren't here but you have such an amazing story in a visual way that you've created through your art that will be so special to share with William. Yeah, and I think it makes it like, because I do, like, I use very fantastical kind of creatures, and I think it makes it like a story, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's what folk tales do in fables, is mm-hmm. they use kind of animal surrogates and these sort of counterparts to talk about hard stuff. And so I, I'm hoping that my work does that. And he's going to wonder why he was adopted anyways and all that that's going to all be part of his story so those questions are going to come up but I feel like even the way that you've used the rainbow as sort of this beautiful symbol for Ellis for a kid to be able to understand that like like I think visual um representations of things are really helpful for kids and can turn it into something that's part of their story versus something really like dark and heavy Mm -hmm. and like you don't want to talk about it but but it was like this thing that happened on the way to meeting you Mm -hmm. you know so talk about some of the work you've made specifically about William okay um so I've done a bunch of stuff about William I kind of switched gears because for so long my work was about loss and now I had this kid I'm like oh my gosh I get to make you know I want to make work about this whole experience so when we were in the hospital with William or with, with his birth mom and birth brother and William being born, um, they were printing out all the the strips of his fetal heartbeat that kind of rises and falls as birth mom's going through contractions and turning over and all that kind of stuff. So I remember them taking all these strips, rolling them up and throwing them in the trash. And as an artist and also as like someone that's like so excited to be there, I'm like, this is a gold mine. Don't throw that <laughs> stuff away. So... I would go over to the trash and like pull all of these fetal heart strip monitors out of the trash and I took them all home 
And I lived with them for like six months, just kind of stored somewhere. Um, I had made this series of work about kids that had um, like heart, different heart conditions and sort of their fetal heart strips or would um, had different rhythms that would produce this kind of music. And so I would turn them into music boxes, like the old school paper hole punch music boxes. And so I ended up taking William's um, fetal heart strip and turning it into a song. So I graphed the, I don't know how to talk about this because I'm not a musician. I would put like the highs and the lows as like the high C, the low C, sort of stuff like that. And I mapped it all out um, into a song and I made a little music box um, that plays and it tells the whole sort of story of his birth, you know, to where when at the very end when he's born there's this like sort of crescendo and then like silent little or little like separated sounds little dots and then it just goes silent mm. and I learned a kind of interesting fact from an artist lecture by Dario Robletto and it talks about so when a mother is carrying a baby their heartbeats are incomplete um, synchronicity is that a word synchronicity mm. um, and so a scientist did something where he put and you can feel that heartbeat through the umbilical cord that mm-hmm. sort of in tune heartbeat and they put the stethoscope whatever was recording it onto the umbilical cord and when they cut that umbilical cord the heartbeat of the baby kind of stops for a little bit and then it starts up again on its own Mm. and so it's sort of like a you enter this world with like a small death and Mm. you know and then you start your life and especially for someone that's placing their kid for adoption it's kind of like a goodbye sort of it was a I always talk about his birth mom being his first home and his first the first woman that really like loved him and took care of him and that when he was born that was kind of her goodbye then and symbolized through this heartbeat and then in turn reinterpreted by me into a song in a music box. So that was one piece I made for him. Um, I know I'm like, this poor kid's going to have so much because I can't <laughs> like none of this stuff is going anywhere. Like it's all his. Yeah, um, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like like you have to take your quilt to college. Okay? You know, that's right. So then I started telling because kids that are adopted, they talk a lot about how to tell, how to best tell their adoption story, you know, in a way that's healthy and doesn't bring shame and all this kind of stuff. So um, my work's kind of narrative anyways. And so I, I started making these cyanotypes that kind of uh, told the story of William's birth through a very folkloric kind of mythology. Will you explain what a cyanotype is? Yes. So a cyanotype is one of the first, earliest forms of photography. And it was actually first really used as an art form specifically by a woman. Um, mm. But a long time ago, people would use it to make architecture blueprints or to catalog plants and things like that. Um, it's a it's a two-chemical process, and you put the chemicals on paper or fabric, um, and you take them outside into the sun, and you put, you know say if you were to put your hand on this piece of paper and then you expose it to the sun for 10 minutes, when you bring it inside and wash it, where your hand was is going to be white and the rest of it is bright, deep blue. Um, 
And so I liked using cyanotypes because they were easy. They were fast. It was what I could do, you know, having a newborn at home. But also I liked, you know, I just had a little boy and I liked like this bright, vibrant blue sort of filling my life. So I told his story through this series of cyanotypes and I ended up turning them into a quilt for him. And it took me nine months to finish the quilt. Oh, like, wow. I know, which is crazy. So I just recently finished it for him. Um, you know, and I wrote some, like each, uh, panel has a little, um, embroidered words around it, like to tell the story. Um, and then I ended up also animating it. So I have an animation that goes with it. But then in turn, my work has, I think because my work is so much just my life, it's completely changed gears to where now I'm doing stuff, exploring ideas of masculinity is as a woman who's a feminist um, that has this little boy, I see how toxic sort of typical ideas of masculinity are to my kid. And I want to make work, you know, art's about making the world safe for you. And I want to make now in turn, make the world safe for my kiddo, which is for the first time me exploring ideas of masculinity. So it's changed since I've had him. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I think one thing I didn't talk about was that. So for me, I I think it was easy for me to make the choice to adopt because I never had a strong desire to want to be pregnant. Like I have a complicated history with my body anyways. But Aaron was really scared of the idea of adopting. It made him really nervous. He, um. And I think it makes a lot of people nervous. Like, it's just a huge unknown. You can't control um, what kind of chemicals the birth mom is putting into her body. And so it's just this giant unknown. Um, so I I did, I tried to have kids because that's what he wanted. He wanted to try and have kids on her own. But that being said, after the third one, I, even after the second one, he was like, let's just adopt, yeah. you know? But it's weird when you get into that place of trying to get pregnant. It's almost like, oh, this is going to happen. I'm going to make my body do this. Right. And the doctors sometimes feed into that with you. There's like, we can do this test. We can do this. Have you tried this? You know, and you can chase that for, you know, for a long time. And it, it eventually works out for most women, you know. I had a cousin that had did in vitro for years, and she has two healthy kiddos now. Um, but for me, it was so emotionally draining. I wasn't willing to do that anymore. And another thing for women that struggle with depression and anxiety, I'm on, you know, permanent anxiety medication. I have been for years. And every time I got pregnant or wanted to try and get pregnant, I had to get off of my medication. Mm. So not only was my body going through this like yo-yo of hormones and putting weight on and not losing it and getting really sad and getting really happy, I was also not on my meds um, the whole, like off and on the whole time, which was just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. So for me, it was like a pretty easy decision to adopt and one that I don't regret at all. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your story and being honest about the whole journey, including miscarriage, because I know, like you said, 
a lot of the realities of what actually happens during miscarriage isn't talked about. And at all, I think it's really important to talk about those things and yeah. also trying to conceive after loss, yeah. um, which is a whole nother challenge. Yes. And we finally, and that's another, like we had to go to sex therapy yeah. and all this stuff afterwards. Cause it really did a number on our sex life, but things are back on track and they're doing good, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a mess. Yeah. It's just <laughs> life after loss is challenging and it takes a long time to even after you have your kid you're still like recovering right yeah and you and I've talked about how you know you can feel so much fear when you're going through that unknown process of either trying to conceive a child or actually being pregnant waiting adopting there's so much fear but then even when you have a healthy child there are so many things you could fear for the rest of their life. So that's not how we want to live our lives is, is being fearful. So I think that's important to share too and talk about is like, yeah, these things are challenging and scary, but um, life is full of unknowns. Yeah, for sure. So unfortunately we've learned these lessons earlier than a lot of other people. Um, But I'm, I'm so glad that you have boldly shared your story through your art too, because for me that was, um, so refreshing to see as a person who was new to loss and um, I hadn't really known anyone who had gone through um, losing a baby and so to see your work telling that story in such a beautiful original way um, was really healing for me so I hope that it'll also be um, healing for other people so I encourage you um, maybe you can share kind of some of your platforms where oh, people okay. can see your work and find you. Sure. Um, SarahFoxArt.com is my website. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, F-O-X-S-A-R. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this podcast with you. I think both of us are, we have a lot in common and we're both like, we both took our loss and, tried to turn it into something that we thought might be able to help other people but also help ourselves and I think what you're doing is really beautiful and really really important thank you you're welcome (laughs) I hope this episode was meaningful for you to connect with me you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on Instagram please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss whether they are trying to conceive, currently pregnant, or parenting after loss. And please subscribe and review this podcast. Your feedback will help shape this podcast and will also help others to find it. Stay tuned for the next episode, where I'll share the latest update on our journey to a rainbow baby, including what it was like to take a new step by visiting a fertility clinic for the first time. I'm Taylor Bates. Thank you so much for listening.